everyone welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast i am tarun gupta and our guest today is lizzy chapman co-founder and ceo of zest money india's largest emi financing and buy now pay little network lizzy started her career as an equity research analyst with goldman sachs in london after a five year stint at goldman sachs she moved to the buy side as an investor at welcome trust In 2011, she moved from UK to India to set up and lead operations for digital lender Wonga, and in 2014, she led the launch of DigiBank, India's first mobile app-only bank. Lizzie is a leading figure in the Indian fintech landscape. She was awarded the prestigious Economic Times Startup Award in 2021 and recognized as among the top 100 women in fintech globally by Fintech Magazine. Join me as we explore what inspired Lizzie to start Zest Money. her experiences as a female entrepreneur growth of buy now pay later industry in india and much more hope you like the show hi lizzie thank you so much for joining us on the show today how are you and where are you calling from hey thank you so much for having me um i am here in mumbai uh, and excited to talk about fintech and all things finance awesome on that note can you tell us a bit about your career and how you got involved in fintech Yeah sure. Um and like all the best stories it was not planned at all. Uh I actually studied medical microbiology which is quite a niche subject but common in the UK for people to to study specific subjects like that and I was quite passionate about solving some of the biggest problems in the world like HIV uh and pandemics which is obviously now back in fashion. But whilst I was at university I got really interested in financial markets and that was because I started trading. So just like a bunch of people in the last 2 years have learned about finance by trading crypto and financial markets that's what happened to me about 20 years ago. Um I got obsessed with the stock market and through that I actually met a team of people at university who got internships at places like Goldman Sachs. and Goldman just automatically offered me one because of this sort of trading uh, hobby I had and then when I got into Goldman I realized what an amazing exciting career potential it could be so I actually went straight into banking after graduation and I went into a type of uh, job called equity research which is basically all about understanding how businesses work through that uh, I covered banks and i became absolutely fascinated by how banks work and how banks could actually evolve with the adoption of better technology and 20 years ago 15 years ago that was you know very fashionable and very niche today i think we all understand that so really i guess i was one of that first wave of people that was just really really passionate about bringing together financial services and technology um the interesting bit though is in, when i started looking at banks around the world the indian banks were most interesting to me and that's because they'd actually done a very good job of growing and scaling over time but were the least adopting of technology and that was very fascinating to me and i felt that that would change very quickly over you know what has now happened in the last decade and i wanted to be part of that change so 10 years ago i basically committed my career to building technology in financial services in India and that's exactly what I've been doing ever since uh, originally with a company called Wonga then with DBS Bank building the DigiBank product 
and obviously for the last 60 years with uh, Zest Money building digital EMI. Talking about Zest Money, can you tell us a bit about the company and the services it offers? Sure, sure. And it's it's really simple, actually. And we haven't really changed a lot in the last six years from our primary goal, which was to be very, very simple, make life more affordable and easier for more people in this country. What we observed at that time when we started Zest was a huge growth in consumption and digital consumer behavior. So this was the time when, you know, products like Paytm, Zomato, Swiggy, Flipkart, Ola were really taking off, right? We were seeing this massive sudden adoption of digital technology by consumers and the number of digital customers consuming things online in this country was growing at a phenomenal pace. But at the same time, we observed this really weird dichotomy, which is this very evolved consumer on the consumption side, but very limited uh, credit exposure. So you probably know, but India has some of the lowest credit penetration in the world. Household debt is a tiny percentage of GDP compared to the Western markets and even China. And as another example, credit card penetration is extremely low here. So we have probably between 30 and 40 million unique credit card users in the country. But as you know, at the same time, we have maybe six or 700 million um, internet users. And so that was the problem we wanted to solve. How can we invent a much, much, much simpler, easier, more digital and more transparent form of credit compared to a physical credit card, but design it for the digital economy and the digital ecosystem and design it in a way that these e-commerce companies and these online properties could actually help reduce the cost of credit to the end consumer. So we always wanted to create the the most transparent, the cheapest, the most efficient form of credit in the country. And we believed, and we've proven, that by partnering with the digital ecosystem, you can distribute that credit at a much lower cost and and create a much more impactful product. So we believe in what's called a B2B2C business model. And that means we want to partner with retailers, with brands, with travel companies, etc., um, and offer credit at the point of sale or what's sometimes called checkout finance. Uh, And that's proving to be a brilliant model, especially in this market where, you know, you have quite small ticket size requirements and therefore the cost to distribute, deliver and operationalize credit is very, very important to keep low. So now with the explosion of the fintech industry, I think everyone is familiar with what buy now, pay later is, right? But six years ago, this was a very sort of new idea. What were some of the challenges you faced when you started, you know, when you founded Zest Money? Yeah, and, and I'll just specify, so buy now, pay later is a bit of a buzzword. It kind of encompasses lots of different products. And within that, you know, catch-all, there are small ticket products, installment products. You could even argue credit cards fall under that catch-all. So we, we prefer to use slightly more specific terms, such as checkout finance, But the reason I say that is you could almost argue that buy now, pay later has existed in India for two decades. And that's because we have one of the most successful consumer finance companies in the world in this country, and that is Bajaj Finserv. Bajaj is a phenomenal uh, business. It's really worth studying by all entrepreneurs. 
uh, because they actually were one of the first to crack this type of business model that I described, B2B to C. Another terminology, by the way, that a lot of uh, European markets are using now is embedded finance. So how do you embed finance within a transaction or existing uh, transaction flow. And again, you could argue that Bajaj were one of the first to invent that concept. So when we see all these sort of very new age uh, fintech saying that they you know, invented BNPL or they brought BNPL to India, we think actually India's known about this product for a very long time. <laughs> and you can also look at the way even the physical world works, right? So if you've ever um, had a close relationship with your local Kirana store, you will discover that he will let you pay on credits, right? We call this kata. What, what basically has been a normal behavior in a lot of Indian retail for many years is now just being digitalized in, in some of these pay later products. So the big challenge was not in consumer adoption, right? Customers actually understand this concept very well in this country. The idea of EMI is well ingrained. People, it's, you know, it's like a meme, isn't it? Everybody's life revolves around their EMIs. It's completely accepted. So that was the good news. I think the hardest piece in the early days was actually working with the existing financial ecosystem uh, and doing things in a very regulatorily uh, correct manner. And that's because when we started, a lot of the infrastructure had not yet been built. So, for example, there was no UPI at that time, right? So even collecting our money was going to be a challenge. Uh, we had to use paper-based instruments like NACH, which was super clunky and a bad customer experience. Similarly, at that time, EKYC was very, very rudimentary. We did not have the Hara-based uh, OTP, etc. So there was a lot of infrastructure lacking when we started. But we as a business really made it our agenda to be the first and fastest to adopt all of the new infrastructure that was coming out, uh, all of the digital India initiatives, and really pushing the banks and the existing payment systems to innovate and run faster and make the entire flow and journey for the customer much, much more seamless and much more intuitive. And I'm really proud of some of the things we did. You know, we were one of the first companies to uh, work on an E-NACH, an E-N-A-C-H. Um, we were then the first companies to do digital KYC. And we were always very relentless in our obsession with completely digitalizing the journey. We did not want to say, this is a digital product, but please go and meet the agent or go to the branch, right? That just doesn't work. And I'm proud of how rigorous we were in sort of pushing uh, the ecosystem to become much, much more digital. And that's where we are today. I think India is one of the most exciting ecosystems in the world now for digital payments and digital credit. That makes sense. And, and I agree, like infrastructure at that point in time must have been a challenge. But then switching gears for a bit and talking about personal challenges when you were starting up, right? Do you think that being a female entrepreneur came with this unique set of challenges that might or might not be experienced by your male counterparts? Hmm, controversial question. Um, you know what? It's funny. I'm a bit, I'm a bit different in how I think about this topic. Uh, I actually don't think it was a big challenge. And we're, by the way, two female founders. So there are three founders of Zest, myself, Priya, and Ashish. Ashish is our CTO. And he tends to do a lot more of the, you know, coding, 
back in the office. So it's actually often me and Priya who are out there doing deals with the retailers, doing deals with the banks, being the visible face and obviously raising capital. And so, you know, obviously you could assume technology is a very male-dominated world. Financial services is a very, very male-dominated world. And entrepreneurialism and, and venture capital is obviously very dominated by, by males. And so you could assume that we were mad and we picked one of the more challenging career paths. But actually, we were very surprised. And I think from day one, what we realized is, uh, first of all, India, specifically in financial services, is an anomaly in the world. There are many, many, many very senior, well-respected women in the industry, uh, even now our finance minister, right? So from the very, very top down, there are some incredible role models. And we found it very, very easy, actually, to uh, get high level access within the financial services ecosystem. And partly that was because we came with global experience and global learnings from fintech. And a lot of you know, regulators, bankers, lawyers were really, really open minded and interested to learn about what we have been doing in Europe uh, and the other markets. So we use that to our advantage and we really, um, you know, network like crazy. I would say the hardest bit, and I, I'm quite honest about this, but it's, uh, it's important for young women, you know, wanting to go into an entrepreneurial path. The hardest bit was actually the capital raising side because the VC industry all over the world and in India is, you know, 99% male decision makers. So you do have to work a little bit harder there to bust any myths that they might have. But the good thing is our business obviously did well. We were, we were successful from, you know, relatively early on. We became one of the front runners or category leaders in this space. And so what we learned is really after a certain point of time, maybe post series A, I would say, really your numbers speak for you, right? So the numbers, number of customers, number of transactions, revenue, cash flow, profitability, metrics, unit economics, especially in this market, are much more important than your persona or your story. Um, and I think that's really, really important to remember, you know, as, as a female founder, uh, there is absolutely no reason why you could not raise the same amounts of capital as your male counterparts, but you can't believe that your, you know, your personality will do it alone. It has to be based on hardcore metrics and execution and delivering on the strategy that you have designed. And so, yeah, again, very proud of how we have managed to navigate that. Um, but I would say that uh, it's a good time now. I think the world has got even better um, from a equality perspective. And so now would be a great time, especially in India, for young women thinking of, of coming into the fintech world. I think we've got one of the healthier, better ecosystems for women entrepreneurs over here. I agree. After a point, it's the numbers that or the success of the startup that really sells itself, right? And talking about success, you were awarded the Economic Times Startup Award in, in 2021. What what does this award mean for you and for Zest Money? Uh, actually, I'm really bad at awards. <laughs> I always I always sort of downplay it because I think that you know again I prefer the business to speak for itself. So I'm more proud of, for example, how as a business we navigated the COVID period. Right, COVID was a really really difficult time for anybody that has any element of credit risk or lending in their business and 
this business really does have that element. And so for us, the 2020, especially the moratorium period, and then obviously 2021, when all of us had the pain and, and humanitarian crisis that was COVID from a personal even perspective, I think as a business leader, navigating those two environments was extremely challenging. And I'm just so proud of how well our business uh, not just survived, but thrived during those times, how well our team came together at the most difficult times and how we worked together to deliver amazing performance coming out of that period. So um, winning that award was really nice, but it, it came at that time. So I decided to think of it as more of a recognition of the fact that we had done a good job as a team um, through COVID. And that's what we celebrated internally. <laughs> That's amazing. And talking about, you know, navigating tough times, the global buy now, pay later industry or checkout finance, as you may yeah. call it, is going through kind of a tough time with a couple of startups in the US and Europe cutting down valuations, right? What is what is right. this money strategy to overcome this, this lean period? So first of all, it's very important in the world of startups and entrepreneurship to differentiate signal versus noise. And there's a lot of noise in the world right now. What do I mean by that? I mean that these crushing um, share price declines have come and now you're starting to see enormous declines even in private valuations. But actually all of that is noise because what something is valued at is really just a matter of a buyer versus a seller pricing decision. And it can be very emotional and very roller coaster. I prefer to look at the signals, which is the fundamentals in these businesses. And I think what I can say is, especially in global BNKL, there are some very, very, very fundamentally strong businesses at very low prices right now um, that will emerge very strongly over the next few years. And you will see some incredible performance from the leaders. And I'll take a name. Let's take a company like Klarna. We've been big fans of Klarna for actually more than 10 years. Klarna is like a 15-year-old company. And what people forget is most of their life, they were a profitable company. Um, only in the last couple of years did they really internationalize, grow very, very quickly. And they saw um, some weakening of their sort of profitability in unit economics. And then if you combine that with the headwinds coming from global recession, inflationary fears, um, and interest rate rises, obviously, there's a lot of fear and panic about businesses like that. The truth is, fundamentally, that is a very, very strong business. Nothing has changed in the core hypothesis, which is that young digital consumers do not need physical credit cards, do not need traditional credit products. They need embedded finance that lives within their ecosystem and offers them the best, most transparent products. That is still a fact. And I do not believe that that uh, fact has changed. Um, the other thing to remember is India is a completely different universe to markets like the US and Europe. If you remember what I said at the beginning of this discussion, in India, we have maybe 40 million credit card customers, right? In a population of 1.4 billion. In the West, customers are very over leveraged. They have multiple credit cards, multiple credit products, BNPL products, et cetera, et cetera, which is why the current economic environment is so frightening for those companies in India, if you ask any credit issuer today, like Fast Money, you will find that our customers are actually relatively under leveraged when it comes to credit penetration. 
And therefore, a lot of the fears that are hanging as clouds over the global BNPL space are not so relevant in a country like this, where we're coming from a much lower credit base. The, the second point on that is the, Itali- uh, sorry, the Indian consumer is extremely resilient. Indian consumers have survived much more volatile economic cycles than this one. Um, the Indian macro is in a very good place. We'll be back to very strong growth, I believe, in the next couple of quarters. And so a lot of that overhang is actually just not relevant to this macroeconomic environment. And then third and finally, and very important, a little nuance that a lot of people uh, ignore, but in many Western markets, BNPL or embedded finance is a regulatory gray area. There are some interpretations of the regulation that say these are not credit products, therefore they don't need to do KYC or credit checks. Um, In India, that is not true. We have a very, very transparent, clear, simple regulatory regime that, in my opinion, has always been very black and white about how credit is regulated. Credit is credit. There must be KYC. There must be credit checks. There must be bureau reporting. There's very little ambiguity in this market. Um, And where there is ambiguity, for example, around uh, the prepaid instrument or, or whatever, the RBI is clarifying right now to make sure that the industry builds in the way that they think is the most sustainable and safe in the long run. That's completely different to the West, where there are a lot of unregulated or regulatory gray areas. So I think it's really important to focus on the India market and what you know how the India market is performing. And we're seeing very, very, very uh, good environment for offering these products, very stable regulatory environment, and therefore very high projected growth over the next five years. We do expect that this entire industry of embedded finance, checkout finance, will grow um, by about 5x over the next five years. Many different versions and players within that. As I said, I include Bajaj in that as well. Um, And banks will also benefit from this growth. But yeah, this is a brilliant, brilliant market for these types of products. Um, Because frankly, the Indian consumer is also one of the most digital in the world today. And that's why we're so excited to, to be building here. You know, the funny thing is when you mentioned about the consumers being more leveraged in the West, it kind of hit home because when I was in India a year ago, I always had just one credit card. But since I've come yeah. to the US, I'm already already at two and a good chance I might take a third wow. one. Just because really? how much they push. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Listen, when I was, I was at university and I got off of my first credit card with like very little income, right? And I think at one point I had five credit cards in the UK. That's how wow. easy it was to get them. And then I came to India. So my story is even funnier than yours. And it took me seven years to get my first credit card here <laughs> because no bank would give me because I'm foreign. Um, and I tried every bank and, and they would say, open an account, build a relationship with us for one year, then we'll give you credit card. Never happened. So now I've got like seven bank accounts. <laughs> so I'm a complete nightmare. But it shows you how different the uh, credit penetration situation is in, in the West versus India. And by the way, just final thing on that. It's not necessarily a bad thing. The fact that the banks here are especially prudent and risk focused 
has led to us having a relatively stable financial market. And that's why we didn't have such a dramatic financial crisis in 2008 and probably why this period will also be quite smooth. So we we all laugh about it, but actually we should sometimes be quite grateful (laughs) for the financial prudence of this country. I absolutely agree with you on that. And our next question might be of special interest to our listeners. Is this money hiring? If yes, then what is that you look for in potential employees or colleagues? So I think all startups are always hiring all the time. Uh, Talent is one of the most important ingredients in a startup. And um, whilst currently we're being very conservative and focused on obviously not, you know, growing too much given the current environment, um, we are always looking for good people uh, to join our team. I think the most important thing, um, not just for Zest, but working in a startup uh, is having a huge amount of resilience and determination. Often when you join a startup, and especially a fintech, there is a lot of ambiguity, right? There are no certainties about exactly how you're going to get from A to B, right? So you know you, you've got to get from A to B and you have a rough idea of the strategy or product, but there will be many, many roadblocks and challenges along the way. And regulators will throw challenges, infrastructure will throw challenges, um, banks will throw challenges. There are many, many challenges. And so having a really high degree of determination and resilience in your character is going to be one of the most powerful things. And that's obviously what most entrepreneurs have by definition. But if you can build a team of people who want to win no matter what happens. It's a great, great kind of energy and culture to have because that means whenever you face a really challenging environment like COVID or big regulatory upheaval, you know that the team are actually enjoying it, right? We're like banding together. How can we test ourselves? How can we get even stronger? Um, And we don't want a smooth ride. So I think that's probably one of the most important things. And then, of course, we also have our own set of zest values that we follow, uh, which basically are values that define us as people and what we believe is important to operating our business. And we will assess all candidates on that. Um, and i give you a clue. One of them is a value of collaboration. So we truly believe at Zest that we can be better, stronger as individuals and as a company by always collaborating with each other and with the ecosystem and we hire people that you know follow that value in their life so people that you know are not sort of too egotistical or believe that they can do everything on their own people that understand that you're stronger as a network um and we will look for people that have demonstrated that maybe they've played team sports or you know done social initiatives so that's just a clue but we have a set of those values which we review regularly as a team and make sure that we're living those values and that we're hiring people with the same value system because that's what helps you build that DNA and resilience to get you through the ups and the downs. Switching gears for a minute and talking about the Global Fintech Fest, right, or the reason we st- we can attend in the first place. You are part of the Consulting Council for GFF 2022. What is your vision for this event and why do you think it a must attend for anyone interested in fintech. Absolutely, yeah. So I think um, GFF is really cool because it's probably the broadest group of fintech practitioners in India. Um, I love that they've brought together people from you know payments, lending, basically every aspect of fintech in the country. 
And I truly believe that this year and next year are going to be the years where India will stand out globally as one of the most innovative, interesting and high growth fintech markets. So I'm excited for GFF because I think it's going to bring a lot of global attention to our fintech ecosystem. And you will actually see uh, practitioners from all over the world come here and a lot of learning and like best practices. Um, my main goal for, for not just GFF, but for this year is to get more of the fintech industry to collaborate. So, for example, you know, the digital lenders have one group, um, payments people have one group. Like, how do we break down those barriers and, and work together more as an industry and collaborate on lots of the key topics? Like, for example, KYC. KYC affects anybody operating in the financial services space. All walks of fintech um, are impacted by KYC. So together as an industry, let's, let's uh, talk about KYC in aggregate. Um, and so, yeah, that's the main thing I'm excited about. But I think this is the year. This is the year for India. Um, and the rest of the world will actually be looking to India as one of the most interesting fintech markets globally all time. And talking about the ecosystem, and I saw that you are involved in the Indian fintech ecosystem in a much broader sense with being on the executive committee for Digital Lending Association of India or being on the Innovation Council of the National Payments Corporation of India. What motivates you to invest time and resources into these initiatives? Oh, this is this is everything. This is what I live for. I think that, you know, we're all building businesses, right? And that's great. And your business will um, hopefully outlast even you as a founder. That's always your dream. But you can't build a business in a vacuum. A business has to be built as part of an ecosystem, part of an economy. And especially when it's an early ecosystem like fintech, where I believe we're still very early in that journey and that growth journey, it's up to people like us to shape the way that we build that ecosystem. And what I mean by that is how do we build it in the most sustainable, long-term way? How do we do the hard work upfront to make sure that we build for the long-term and that we build in a truly inclusive and sustainable way. And these are kind of, they sound a little bit wishy-washy terms, but they're really important because capitalism and entrepreneurialism by nature is all about maximizing for profit, right? And often profit in the near term. And that sometimes sits counter to building a long-term, viable, sustainable, healthy ecosystem. And so I think it's really, really important for any um, practitioner in an emerging ecosystem to devote a lot of time or as much as they can to building the kind of guardrails around making the whole uh, scene build out properly and sustainably. And I've always felt strongly about that. Um, I think the original financial services entrepreneurs in this country did that brilliantly. You know, if you look at the Udeco tax and Deepak Parex, they were absolutely fanatical about building um, the right rails and the right infrastructure to deliver financial products at scale. And I think it's our duty as like the next generation to do that in a digital sense. And some of the um, guidelines and the ways that the regulator designed the system were designed for a time before so much digital adoption. So for example, at the Digital Lending Association, our job is to try and help the ecosystem and help our members be as regulatory compliant as possible taking in mind all of the new innovation that's happened. And sometimes it's confusing. You know, we often have to help members navigate this stuff, like what is an acceptable amount of data 
to ask a customer for, for example. It was much easier in the old days. You could just fill out a form and everything was like really straightforward. Now we have access to so many more data sets. Customers don't understand, you know, often what they're consenting to, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to, as an industry, define how we want to operate. Um, and yeah, I just like, you know, being part of that discussion and having a seat at the table because we've seen, maybe because we're a bit older at Zest, but we are, we're, we're slightly older than some of the, the very, you know, early stage entrepreneurs. We've seen different economic environments and we've seen different regulatory environments. And therefore we have a bit of a longer view and we can really visualize what the India fintech ecosystem might look like in 20 years. And we want to kind of build towards that again, in a very, very inclusive and sustainable way. For our last segment, what I'd like to do is have a quick rapid fire with the guests to kind okay. of introduce you more as a person to the listeners. So I'm ready when you are. Sure. What is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? Very many. Uh, <laughs> I think most people know this actually, but the weirdest fact about me, probably the weirdest fact is I did run a marathon in Antarctica. There you go. Fun fact. Wow, that must have been intense. Uh, second one is, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? I hate this question. There's too many people. So I, I read a lot and I read a lot of like autobiographies uh, because I'm obsessed with like getting inside the head of a lot of the people I admire. So my list is endless. I would say right now, this minute right now, it's going to sound controversial, but it's truly what I would love to do. I'd love to have dinner with Narendra Modi and understand his vision for the next 10 years and you know how we can play a part in that. So yeah, that would be the most amazing experience. I think he is very, very visionary and I love speaking to visionary people. So yeah, would 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 absolutely die for the opportunity. Maybe not a full dinner. Maybe he can only afford to have a cup of chai with me, but that's fine. <laughs> Talking about speaking to visionary people, if you could go back in time to, and meet a 20-something-year-old Lizzie, what would you tell her? <laughs> oh, I would probably say be even more fearless. I think the biggest learning I've had in life is, you know, all fear or anxiety or constraint is self-imposed. And actually, um, the more you get out of your comfort zone and the more crazy things you do, the easier and more fun life gets. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I've done some pretty crazy stuff, but who knows, maybe I could have done even even crazier things if I'd had that philosophy earlier on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lizzie. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much and, uh, and good luck and hope to see you at GFF. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the What in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at What in Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. <laughs>